0: Thank you, John and Silas. I invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We use a number of names to refer to God. We've just sung a number of them. He's revealed himself to us. Um, giving us many images to think of him as. We know him as the name Lord God. We know him as the Lord will provide. We know him as our good shepherd, Lord of lords, king of kings. The list could go on. One of the best names of all, if you could call one better than another, one of the tenderest and most meaningful names to us would be for us, To know God and refer to him as our father. There's a tenderness about it. A delight in it. A deep relationship and intimacy that accompanies that name. God as your father. I wonder if you know him as your father. Do you think of Him that way? There may be many other ways that you think of Him. You may think of Him as holy, and you'd be right to do so. You may think of Him as perfect, and you'd be right about that. Think of Him as righteous, good, gracious, kind. All those things are great ways to think about God. But to get to the core of the relationship. That we are to have with God, I think Father best sums up our relationship to Him. Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 7, points our attention to the fatherhood of God and our sonship through adoption in Christ. And it helps us to see how important it is that we consider our relationship to God not on the basis of our law keeping, but on the basis of Him adopting us as sons so that we might call Him Father. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray. Father, your word is true. Help us to receive it as such this morning. And by faith, to believe what is here. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen. I have a very simple point to bring to you from this text. And it ought to be one that you agree with. It's this. Being a son is better than than being a slave. There are two related points to this in our text, and it's this, that you are enslaved if you are under the law, or, for that matter, if you are following anyone other or anything other than Jesus Christ. The second point related to being a son is better than being a slave is this, That you are a son of God if you have faith in Jesus Christ. You can see this point very clearly in chapter 4, verse 7. This is the conclusion that Paul makes. This is where he is driving us towards. He says, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's the conclusion after building up all of this argumentation is to help us understand that in Christ Jesus, by faith in Christ, you are no longer slaves, but you are considered sons. J.I. Packer wrote regarding the importance of sonship and adoption by God the Father, and God as Father, wrote this. What is a Christian? The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know Is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. End quote. We'll see how this fits into Paul's schematic here because this doesn't just drop in out of nowhere. It's not as though all of a sudden Paul decides he wants to talk about the fatherhood of God out of the blue. He's engaging in a debate, and the debate is surrounding the question how is one considered right in the presence of God? How can you be considered worthy, in a sense, to stand before God on the day of judgment, or even now in his presence accessing his throne? There are only two real answers to that question, and the two answers are the core of the debate that Paul's engaged in. And one answer is that in order to be right with God, you can do something to earn it. The way that it's been put in this book is that you are justified by works of the law. The second Answer is that something has been done for you and you receive it by faith. The way that it's put in this book of Galatians is that you're justified by faith in Christ. Those are the two answers to the debate. How is one considered right in the presence of God? Either it's your works or it's the reception of God's gift by faith. The false teachers were advocating option number one. The gospel declares answer number two something is done for you. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then chapter 1, verse 4. A summary of the Gospel referring to Jesus Christ who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil Age according to the will of our God and Father. The whole book of Galatians is advocating the reality that God has done something for us. We have not done something for God. And we receive this gift of salvation by faith in His Son Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as a curse on the cross. So most of Galatians then is helping us to understand why answer number two is true and answer number one is false. The reason. One of the reasons that's been presented to us as to why it's false that you can be justified by works of the law is found in chapter 3, verse 10. It says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. If you seek to be justified before God on the basis of your works, You're cursed because you haven't kept the law. Paul goes on to help us understand that God's blessing or the forgiveness of sins came before the law and does not interrupt the law. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says, This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. He helps us understand that God started with promise, not with law. He made a promise that he would bless the world through Abraham. The interruption of the law does not negate that promise. As a matter of fact, the law serves to lead us to that promise by showing that we cannot inherit God's blessings by law-keeping. We can only inherit them by receiving the promise. That's been his argument so far. And he shows us in chapter 3 verse 22 that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, this argument develops in another direction, but with the same goal. To help us understand that we are not counted right before God on the basis of works, but on the basis of faith in Christ. Significance of him introducing the fatherhood of God and adoption of son, as sons is this: is that you, if you are a son of God, and an heir of God, on the basis of faith in Christ, which it says in verse twenty six, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. If you are a son of God, and an heir of God's promises on the basis of faith in Christ. What more could you ask for? If you are considered to be somebody who is going to inherit every good thing that God could possibly give, which is what it means to be an heir, and you receive that by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, then why are you doing works of the law? What does that get you? Paul helps us develop this argument in two stages in chapter 4. First, he shows us what our status was before faith in Christ. Your status before faith in Christ was that you were enslaved. You were enslaved. He begins with this illustration In verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. He brings this illustration up because they were people who would have thought that they were heirs of God's promises and blessings because they were law keepers. You see this all throughout the ministry of Jesus, we know them as the Pharisees. There were people who thought they were good enough before God and deserved His blessing because they had done everything right. But the law, rather than establishing that relationship with God and bestowing God's blessing, is actually a steward or a manager that almost acts as an enslaver over the person who tries to keep the law. It does not act as a father, the law does not act as a kind and loving father, it acts as a guardian. And treats you as a slave. So this illustration helps us picture the reality of those who think that they are inheriting the promises of God by works of the law. But in reality, they're like a child who has a promise made to them. But they're young, they're underage, they're a minor. The language doesn't indicate how old they are. The simple fact is that they're just somebody who hasn't reached that age of maturity yet. It could be age of 18 or age 25. Whatever date was set by his father to receive the inheritance. That happens sometimes in our day where parents will make out a will and they say that their kids will inherit everything of the estate, but they can't have access to it until a certain age is met. And until then, the estate is going to be managed by some steward or some guardian. That's the point that Paul is making. He's helping us understand that there are situations where there might be a promise out there But the reception of the promise hasn't come yet. In the meantime, they're kept under this stewardship, this guardian, this manager. They have not received the inheritance. And for this child, even though a promise is made to him, functionally, he's no different than a slave. Because he's under, in a sense, the ownership of somebody else. Roman slaves had pretty much no rights. They didn't have the right to choose where they went, when they worked, who their master was. They were regarded as things or property. They could not determine anything for themselves. In the case of this child, who's not reached the age of maturity yet, to receive an inheritance, he's in the same category as a slave. He's under these guardians. He doesn't get to make decisions for himself. Managers and others are deciding what to do with the estate and keep it for him until that time that he reaches the date set by his father. Paul helps us understand the application of this. In verse 3, he says, "...in the same way, we also, when we were children... We're enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. He's referring to a time before we've come to faith in Christ. Almost a time when the whole world hadn't come to faith in Christ. You're enslaved. A promise is out there, but the inheritance hasn't come. You're like this child... Who has not reached that date set by the Father to receive the inheritance. And during that time, he says that you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What are these elementary principles? The word would literally mean something like the ABCs or the fundamental teachings. It's putting something in in a row, in a logical order. It's the basics could also refer just to the material elements of the world. Um, The ancients would have thought of it as, what are they, the four, the earth, wind, fire and water, the basic building blocks of the world. It could be something referring to that. And Paul is saying you're enslaved to those things. Look down at chapter 4, verse 8. He says, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by Him, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. He tells the Galatians, or reminds them, that they were people who were once enslaved to idols. They are enslaved to a false religion. And he compares that to the history of the Jewish people who were enslaved to the law. Not to say that the law in any way promoted idolatry. But he says both are, in a sense, elementary principles. They're basics. And I take it as Paul is saying that these are things that are more earthly, preparing for something more spiritual. We could see this perhaps in the way that Old Testament religion worked. They had the temple or the tabernacle, a physical place that they would go to worship, a place that was ornate and elaborate. At the temple, they had priests that would guard the temple or the tabernacle. They would have sacrifices, literal animals that they would have to slit the throats of and offer as a sacrifice before God. They'd have quite a literal altar where the sacrifice would be burned. They would have feast days and Sabbaths. Their religion, in a sense, was very physical, almost earthly in existence. For those who were idolaters, something could be said similarly. They would have physical sacrifices that they would offer their God. They would have these rituals and pagan feasts that they would engage in. It would be important what kind of clothes they wore and what kind of food they ate. And I think the point that's being driven at here as in that all that religion, all that's going on, all that religiosity and ritualistic worship, all the sacrifices, all the feasts, all the dietary laws, how did they relate to God? Did they relate to Him as a father? Or were they under the enslavement and dominance of the religious system that they were under. Certainly some in the Old Testament had a true and vibrant relationship with God. You can read about them in the Psalms. David had one. Joseph or Daniel both had vibrant relationships with God. But by and large, people did not relate to God as a father. They were under this system And they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world and religion became more of a mechanism than a relationship. Do this and do that. Wear this and wear that. Go here and go there. They don't look like full-fledged sons of a father. They look more like slaves of a system. This kind of underage, not treated as a son, having received the inheritance status, could be perhaps illustrated when Israel came to Sinai. It was terrifying. They met the Lord as the lawgiver there. You can turn over to Hebrews chapter 12, which describes that event for us. Hebrews 12, verse 18. That's the description of Israel as they come to Mount Sinai to receive the law. It's a fearsome event. The people were told to purify themselves and bathe. And a fence was erected around the mountain so that people wouldn't go to the mountain and touch it and die. And only Moses and some of the elders were invited up on the mountain as God gave the law. And as the author of Hebrews indicates, even Moses at the sight trembled with fear. That's not the sight of someone coming to the father as a son. I find this principle of somebody who has a promise given to them, but they are living under the status of a slave to be illustrated in Luke chapter 15. You know this story well, I'm sure, of the prodigal son. But the illustration doesn't come from the prodigal who went away and came back to his father. The illustration comes from the other brother. Luke 15, verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. This is the celebration that came after the prodigal son came back, and the father throws this feast. Verse 26, And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he, still referring to the older brother, was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. See the resentment of this older brother. He does not view his relationship with his father as one of a father and a son. He views himself as a slave, as a servant who's labored and has never received anything in benefit for all his labor. And the father responds in verse 31, and he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this. your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and f- is found. One of the problems that sinful humans have in serving under the law, not that there's a problem with the law, but there's a problem with us, is that as we come to the law, and we do, and we do, and we do, and we work, and we work, and we work, and we begin to look at God as the stingy figure who does not give, in recompense for all that we have worked. And so we feel as though we're slaves rather than sons. And indeed, when we're under the law and we relate to God through the law, that's what we are. We're no better than slaves. And so your status under the law is you are enslaved. You don't have a relationship with God as Father You have a relationship with the law as your master. Back in Galatians chapter 4, Paul moves on to the status in Christ. The status in Christ is that you are adopted. verse 4, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. With the coming of Christ, something was revealed. And the thing that was revealed among many things, was that God had a son. It says God sent forth his son. This is the eternal son of God, the one who always existed in heaven before he took on flesh. And at a certain point in history, God had seen and decided that the time was fulfilled. There's no more waiting. We're going to move out of this law of era into a law of Christ, into the era of Christ. And so the fullness of time came, and God sent forth His Son. This, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's think about what it means that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the Son of God in a unique way, a way that is totally distinct from our Sonship, because Jesus Christ has always experienced God as Father. And by always, I mean always. Before there was time. Always. He's always had this intimate relationship. That's why God could send him before he was born. But as he took on flesh, as the Son of God was born, we get to see a human relationship with God as Father. And if you've never read through the Gospels before with this lens, perhaps it would be worth your while to do a study about how Jesus uses the term Father in His ministry. And you will see that it is prolific. The way that He refers to God is as His Father. Just a couple of examples. In Matthew 11, verse 25, it says, "...at that time Jesus declared, "'I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth,' that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Several times in that short paragraph, Jesus refers to God as his Father. This is something new. In John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Jesus there identifies himself totally and completely with his Father in heaven. That is his identity, is that he is the Son of the Father. In John chapter 8, verse 19, they said to Jesus, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered them, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So as the son enters the world, he brings with him this display of a wonderful relationship between a son and a father. And you see in the life of Jesus this intimate, loving relationship with God and his, as his father. As you walk through the life of Jesus, you see something special about Him. Obviously, many things special about Him. But you see that He's not a man-fearer. He doesn't care what man thinks of Him. But throughout His ministry, throughout His life, as we observe it in the Gospels, we see that He is enamored, all-consumed with God as His Father. He came to do His Father's will. That's why He woke up early and spent time in prayer. That's why He was up all night in prayer. That's why in the moment of His utter night of darkness before the cross, He spent in prayer to His Father and even called out, Abba, Father. You see in Christ someone who is so passionate about His Father that no other relationship seems to come close in his life. God sent his Son, born of woman, born under the law. This is to help us understand that he sent his beloved Son for us. Look back at Romans chapter 8 helps us understand what it means that this Son was born of woman, born under the law. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Verse 3 is the parallel to what we just saw in Galatians 4. Jesus was born of woman. That means that he was born in the likeness of sinful flesh. It means he took on humanity. He looked like us. In a sense, he physically looked like a sinner, even though he was without sin. And he did that so that he could be put under the law. And he was put under the law, it says in Romans 8.3, for sin. Jesus lived perfect under the law. He was without sin under the law. But He took on the likeness of sinful flesh for our sin so that He would be condemned in the flesh for our sin. So as the Son is sent into the world, we understand that He was sent for us. And that's why Paul, back in Galatians 4, expresses the purpose for which God sent his son, born of woman, and born under the law. And the purpose was to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to redeem those born under the law, those who are under the law. To redeem is to buy somebody out of slavery. In ancient Rome, a slave would earn a small wage that was really under the um, purview of his master. He didn't have complete access to it, but he would gain some financial benefit from his work. And after a time, he could use those funds to purchase his freedom, and he'd be set free. That was redemption. He would buy himself out of slavery, or somebody else could do it for him. In our case, under the law, there is a debt that we owe and the debt that we owe is death because we've broken the law. And if you want to pay that debt, the only way that you can pay it is by being sentenced to death. Nobody wants that. That's why Jesus Christ came. He was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law by becoming a curse for us. He suffered and died to redeem us, to pay the debt that we owed to set us free. And this is where it gets really good. If that wasn't enough, which is a staggering thought, and something that Paul has spent three and a half chapters developing, that because of Jesus Christ's debt on the cross, or death on the cross, our debt is paid in full, and we owe nothing to God anymore. All of your debt is paid, and so there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are regarded as innocent when you put your faith in Christ. All of your sins are forgiven. Not only that, you are regarded by God as righteous, and you have access into his kingdom now. It's given you a status where you are not sentenced to hell, but you are given heaven. That's wonderful. And we could spend all of eternity rejoicing in that. We've been redeemed, justified, forgiven, cleansed, made new. All of these things have been applied to us by the blood of Christ. But there's a little further we can go. Because if you leave it at justification, it almost just sounds like this stark relational change between you and a judge you went into a courtroom guilty as sin with every weight of evidence against you and the judge declares you not guilty great wonderful but now he's still a judge and you're just not guilty But as you go further into what Christ accomplished, there's a next step. And that's adoption as sons. Because then the judge comes out from his bench, and now he's a father. And he's looking at an orphan. And now he declares, You're my son. And all that God has, all that he owns, now belongs to you as well. That's adoption. We see that in our own society, and you I know some of them in our own congregation know adoption very intimately. You used to belong to another family. The Bible says that we were children of wrath We were sons of disobedience and our father was the devil. That's our heritage. That's our spiritual family. We've been set free from the dominion of those things. But now we're without a family. Until God the Father comes to those he set free and declares by the blood of Christ... You're my kids. Jesus Christ came and was sent so that we might receive adoption as sons. In verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Adoption is is another legal declaration like justification. Justification declares you innocent. Adoption declares you a son. But it comes with this wonderful relationship that God instills in us by His supernatural spirit, His supreme spirit, the Holy Spirit. It said here, the spirit of His Son, who is sent into our hearts. And so you experience Sonship before God as Father by means of the Holy Spirit. And so when you are transformed from a slave to a son, and you can now call God your Father, it is because Jesus Christ died for you to forgive your sins. It is because God the Father has adopted you as, your, as a son. And it is because the Holy Spirit has come into your heart, and you can now recognize God as your Father. In your own nature, in your own flesh, in your own humanness, you cannot call God your Father and mean it and feel it and experience it. But when the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, this is not a superficial thing where all of a sudden you start wearing a clothes, clothing that says, God is my Father. You have something happening in your heart that the Spirit has come as deep as you are and declares through your heart to God that He is your Father. And so if you receive this adoption and you experience it, and it is such an intimate relationship that you now possess with God as your Father, that you can refer to Him in the same way that the eternal Son of God referred to Him in His humanity. Abba. Papa. Father. That's the way Jesus referred to God in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was awaiting the agonies of Calvary. In his moment of greatest distress, he calls out to God, Abba, Father. And I think that's instructive to us because we, like children, run up to our physical parents when we've got a skinned knee? Daddy. We're just kids, spiritually speaking. We skin our knees all the time. And who do we go to? Abba, Father. And we know He's really our Father. He really cares for us. The whole relationship between us and God has been transformed so that he's our father and we are his sons. Verse 7, the conclusion. So you are no longer a slave. So don't live like one, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Again, I take being an heir as being the recipient of every good thing that God could, would, give you. We receive the down payment of this inheritance with the staggering gift of the Holy Spirit. There's more to come. Romans 8, it says... We're waiting for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's to come. But for now, be content that your heart's been redeemed, that you've been made new, that you, through the Spirit, can cry out to God as your Father. In good days, bad days, and worst days, you've got someone there who is always for you like a father. I think one of my greatest earthly privileges is to be a dad. Four kids. It's such a great joy. They come, I probably hear the word, the name dad or daddy, probably about 215 times a day would be my guess. If I had to put a number on it. And usually there's a question behind it dad, can you, dad, would you, daddy, please. They don't run out of things that they need. But my attention is distracted. My attention is diverted. I, I have to neglect them at times because I have other things to do. I have to preach. I have to do other work. And so I have to say things like, not right now. Or I have to give answers like, I can't. Or I'm not going to do that. Or let's talk later about that. I'm so limited. I'm so inaccessible. I'm so powerless and weak. Your father in heaven isn't. He can always hear you. He always has time for you. He always has the right thing to say to you. He's all wise, all good, all knowing. He's perfect. Do you know him as your father? You don't know him as your father. You don't know him. But you can know him. You can know him through His Son, Jesus Christ, and by His Spirit, who He pours into your heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You that we can call You that because of what You've done for us through Christ and your spirit, and your sovereign choice. Father, you are so good. You've redeemed us out of our enslavement to these elementary principles of the world that we all walked in. And not only have you justified and redeemed us, but you've adopted us into your family. Oh, what love Father has given to us that we should be called your children. Father, I pray that this truth would not be lost on us this week. It would inform our days, our nights, the whole of our life. We would not strive to earn your pleasure. Help us to know you're already there for us as our Father. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.